tonight, we continue our discussion of Amazon's sci-fi show, The Peripheral. Then we resume our Star Trek DS9 discussion with Battle Lines and The Storyteller. All this coming up right now on The Writer Brothers. Welcome back to your Tuesday night home for the next four years for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and the remaining couple of weeks uh, for however much more peripheral we get. My name is Petey York and I am of course joined by no longer the Halloween decoration, Mr. Corion, witch in residence, just a regular old witch now. And of course, Pollo Zapatos, aka John, aka wearing the team colors as always with pride. Gentlemen, how are we doing? How are we doing this week? How how was our week of, of shows and, and and yeah shows this week? Well, you know, uh, doing really great. Uh, I see you're wearing your um, you know your your fleet uh, shirt there for uh, your civilian fleet shirt there. I just want to say, given that we're moving into November, thank you very much for your service. Uh, being a red shirt is incredibly difficult, but you did it right. So, uh, yeah, you know, I went uh, black instead. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, doing great. Uh, Halloween was raw. Uh, oh, wait, Halloween that's actually worse. That means I'm section 31. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Dude, nobody wants to be a spy. Trust me on this. Nope. Not even plain and simple tailors want to be spies. Nope. I, yeah, I thought it was cool. You know, cool idea. And then I watched, you know, when I was watching, like, when Homeland was good for that first season. And then, and then I was just like... Uh, yeah, I, I thought, oh, you know, how cool would it be to do that type of stuff? And then as I got older and realized how horrible things are, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah, saw a lucrative money-making industry like many of the spies do. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I, I suppose using the Enterprise to, to I don't know, uh, you know, uh, to bring spice to, you know, various... Uh, you know, developing worlds would kind of be a bad idea. Arende writes in, moving into November. Remember, remember the 5th of November of Gunpowder, Treason, and Plot. I know of no reason why the Gunpowder, Treason should ever be forgot. Uh, next week, Arende. But Very this fair. week... Also, Nemesis of Eden. We are having an awesome day. Thank you for being the first commenter. Forgot to write that one in. Read that one out, I should say. Yeah, yeah I, I, we probably should catch up on comments <laughs> that we get before the show, at least while we can, while we're still small and can manage everybody. But, you know, once we get 10 concurrent viewers, ah, you know, it's out of our hands. Now, uh, Amazon's The Peripheral continues to keep my attention. I hope the same can be said for you guys. Uh, John, since you're such a huge fan of the star, why don't you go ahead and, and give us a quick summary of what happened this week and... Uh, and give us your thoughts. Well, so this week we've gotten a more exposition-heavy episode telling us a little bit more of the known players uh, and a little bit more background on the setup. We open with learning exactly who Pickett is and what he intends to do to those that try to take his territory. Um, a rather grotesque uh 
ritual murder of sorts um because he does use the the murder and the bodies of those that he murders to broadcast to the entirety of the crime world don't and then as we know from the first two episodes he is the crime lord of this territory so it's not really a don't because we don't like crime it's a don't because i'm the new dad and from there we get more information about 2090 or 2100 um less in terms of how everything got there but more in terms of who matters to who we meet wolf aka wilfred aka wolfgang um and alita as children and we meet their mom i don't think we met their dad oh uh, we met him um, briefly Briefly. He, he was and at the uh, from... he was at the dog and pony show when they picked him out. Right. Okay. There we go. So we met the dad, but that was it. And we get this idea that children and their parents being separated is such an issue that it is a state honor to take in uh, children, orphans. Well, what I got as an impression was that there was some sort of massive viral outbreak or something along those lines, and the population was decimated, and these were kids that had survived, and they were now trying to get them new homes because these kids' parents were most likely deceased. Yeah, and but that's, see, that's what I, I couldn't figure out, the source of the total death. But I could see that there are so many orphans that at this point, like, not only is it like there's the traditional government end of taking in uh, orphans, but then now there's an honor attributed to it. Like, it's so bad that, like, especially when we finally see where these families, where this the parents actually reside. Like, they are kings and queens by today's standards. And in 2090, they are like super wealthy or 2100 they are super elite wealthy and so for them to be the ones stepping into the supporting the orphan cause that's the part that really well i got the impression how much of it's become like a national need yeah i, I got the real impression quick, very similar to real it. quick uh, nemesis of eden rants in back to work i'll check out the replay later stay awesome everyone hey have a good night nemesis thanks for checking thanks in for with coming. us and uh yeah we're sorry to see you go but we totally understand we we would love for us That's to just be able to have you sit here and hang out with us all night, but we also have jobs too. So, we just, yeah, go get we, that paycheck, bro. Yeah, we appreciate you coming though. Yeah. So, no, I got the impression that it was very similar to like the end of World War II, where in London, mm-hmm. where there was a lot of bombings, there were some, there were a lot of displaced people, and people moved up the economic ladder very quickly because there was simply nobody else in the way. And that these kids needed homes, so it was like a civic duty to raise these kids. Yeah, and so from there, once we've been introduced to more of how things got to where they are, or things were, prior to Alita and prior to 2100, but not so much at a full line, like, here's what's happened. It's a really nice light 
exposition dump. They're, they're setting the stones, but not necessarily making us put it all together right now and figure it all out and be ready for the next episode to come crashing in and change all the rules, right? And we also get more information about how the synaptics work. Um, and to the point that I got really, I got a lot of Pacific Rim vibes. I don't know if you guys got that. A little bit, a little bit. I haven't mind seen Mel. Oh God, you haven't seen Pacific even? Rim, dude? Oh, we're, we're, the cartoon we're gonna have series. To sit down. We'll, we'll probably the movies. the movies feel like after the cartoon series, you're like, oh, there is a whole story, and then you watch the movie and you're like, cool, live action. Well, the the month of January, which is just you know a giant Monday, that that might be a good month to to bust out some <laughs> some movie classics since. Uh, well, here's what I'm going to say. January 30th is my birthday, and I feel like for my birthday stream, maybe we will sit down and watch it all together. I'm working on a system to set it up so that the three of us can watch stuff together when one of us streams it out to the other two. Do a little live react. Yeah, no, that could yeah. be Hell yeah, that'd be awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the disease thing, that, that definitely explains why some of those uh, large structures weren't completed. Um, why there's half-ass built statues everywhere. And, well, not everywhere. They almost had Michelangelo's David completed. Um, and then I'll uh, catch up on some fan mail real quick. Arende says, as a beekeeper, I was a bit pissed. LOL. That tea. Uh, I have a month off during the holidays. Can't wait. Oh, congratulations. That's That's awesome. Yeah. I don't, but I also don't, uh, well, I technically work full-time. I only get paid for half of it. You know, I got a, I got a pretty decent life. I'm not complaining too hard. I just need more. But who doesn't? <laughs> I am, I am curious why you are hit about that beekeeper scene. Aside from the part where they were saying, like, the bees keep going extinct, like, every five to twelve years. And it is literally on the the rich beekeeper basically revitalizing the colony just in case right now. Yeah, um, but it I'm not seemed... sure if that's what you were pissed about or if you were pissed about the fact that that tea was used to kill the next part of the story, which is everybody that has any relation to Alita. Oh, hey, 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 hold under... on. Hold on. This isn't Star Trek Discovery, okay? It didn't kill the next part of the story. No, it, 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 none of this kills the story. So, like, that was the nice thing about this episode is we did still get plot moving, just more details to back it up. And so yeah. we go from learning that Alita and Wolf are related through trauma and through parentage due to being orphaned around the same time. Yeah. So they and and were a bonded pair in the group home. Right. Um, which is what led to them maintaining their relationship through the orphan process because the original family's goals was just one white girl. Um, which is an interesting note that, like, the show isn't shying away from the fact that, like, people, even when they're trying to help the orphans, are still really, really picky about which orphans they help. Well, okay. And that is a known fact about... Yeah, I mean, look, it's not unreasonable, I don't think, for people to select whoever they want and to try to have their kid, not you know, unreasonable. kid that they're looking for look like them. But 
at the same still time. still a known issue since Stuart Little, when they picked yes. a mouse over all of the orphan children. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and to address the bee scene, like, I get why you'd be annoyed at that, because it makes people more afraid of bees, and being a beekeeper, you want people to be pretty cool and and yeah as you yeah so as you're saying it go ahead and read uh, go ahead john take the fan mail yeah what uh what was aggravating is using bees as a weapon and create remember audio podcast arendi writes in sorry arendi writes in what was aggravating is using bees as a weapon it creates warped perceptions about the dangers and lack thereof of bees not terribly angry but there's a lot of gullible people out there yeah yeah Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. who's deathly allergic to bees just by circumstance of genetics. Wait, you're I've always had... <laughs> you don't remember my sore throat that one time? I was like... You got a sore throat a, a lot when we were growing up, but I... Oh. No, I mean, like, a bee took my throat and made it, like, this big for, like, a week. And that's when we found yeah, out I, it was deathly. It was I don't death recall. Allergy. Yeah, the only allergen I remember is, uh, is Graham and Nuts. Which is no, ironic because he is nuts. <laughs> right. Well, so for me, it's bees. And I I really liked how they described the importance of bees before using it as a weapon. Because I think bees are... There is a, a, a healthy amount of fear that's necessary. But that healthy fear helps to make more bees like give bees the space they need to pollinate appropriately um especially from what i've heard about them possibly being interfered with by emf given off by your phones if people are shy from bees then they're going to keep their phones away from bees um but i do see that like corian you're you're getting into the idea that if you weaponized bees then people are going to start to kill more bees and that is or at the very that least I think being... is where you need the healthy respect for nature which is what the lady was describing in that scene or the doctor is what everybody called her she was like everybody keeps killing off the bees and now it's gotten to the point that like we can't hardly grow crops without having like beekeepers just doing it themselves and they're also the only ones capable of farming because they're the only ones with bees and so so i I think the the reverence for bees is absolutely necessary um but also the fear Uh, yeah hurt and uh at the same time at the same time arende i i personally would have preferred an explanation of uh well these are specialized bees that have been distorted with the dna of nature's asshole also known as the wasp well, no, and no, they, uh, they they did describe that the it was a, a hornet pheromone that just sent the bees into a frenzy okay now that pisses me off well no it, i don't know i know there is some relationship between the bees and the hornets and the yeah, wasp be, that be, like if certain pheromones will set off certain yeah, be- bees and hornets family. don't don't get along. They're they're not friends. Not not as much as you know. Wasps so basically, and they made this woman a walking hornet, and all of the bees were like, "Get this out of our village." Yeah, and that's what happened. It it was less. It to me, it felt a whole lot less just sci-fi bees are killers. It was very much like there's a natural thing that bees do, 
and then we just put it into your tea, which is the sci-fi part. We made it so that you now sweat that thing. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I do understand Arendi's point, though, about, you know, he would much rather everyone have a lot of respect, you know, like a healthy respect for a wild animal, but still, you know, a fair bit of love for bees because they are super important. So I do get why he'd be a little annoyed at someone using them as a weapon. But I also feel like I I really felt like it wasn't the bees' fault that they were almost being tricked into being a weapon. And, you know, that's... And I, I felt like they set that up very thoroughly. Like, she yeah. took a lot of time to explain her relationship to the bees. If anything, Arendi, it's if you were a villain and maintain beekeeping while becoming this super rich villain. Yeah, so basically what we're saying is... That sounds sounds like the most uh, most unenthusiastic villain superpower. Now tremble before my beekeeping might! No, 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 no. What? Villain who has a beekeeping hobby. It's like if Arendi, while maintaining his beekeeping hobby and passion... Also, also became a supervillain. Support it became a supervillain doctor. Right. But let's see if he used it as a superpower. That'd be that'd be kind of silly. Now it. get ready to drown in my delicious golden honey. Oh well, at least death is gonna taste good. Ooh. There is the hive from Teen Titans. That was one B keeping, Uh-oh. and and then there's uh, worm. And the the main character from uh, uh, wait, uh, man, Wild Bo's story. Uh, that one, that character messed with bugs a lot and maintained bees and horses. Yeah, see, Petey, I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, well, you know, wait a minute, you know, Bee Finger, do you expect me to talk? No, Mister Bond, I expect you to get stung repeatedly. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. No, I, 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 dang it, I'm trying to think of a good sting pun off the top of my head, but uh, all, that's, all that's coming to mind is that creepy song. Oh, can't you see? You <laughs> belong to me. Now, that being said, I mean, she was seriously putting out Bond villain vibes. Oh, absolutely. The whole episode. On top of that, I'm starting to think I know what the plague was. Because I think I've got it. We are seeing examples again and again and again of nanotechnology in the future. I think From the dissolving bike. Yeah, to, to the dissolving steps that didn't actually dissolve. Or the dissolving walkway that didn't actually dissolve. To, to all of it. I think we're dealing with a nanotech virus. And that's what their fu- that's what screwed up their future so badly. Mm. And right. Arendi writes oh, in Sorry, Arendi writes in, don't uh don't get they're not don't get me wrong, they're not completely without danger. Then again, drinking too much water can be dangerous. It felt unnecessary. But then again, I am biased. Whatever puts bees in unjustifiably bad light aggravates aggravates me. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right to have a passion towards bees being recognized as actual useful parts of our ecosystem and and i think that's where the show yes it was the villain highlighting it but we don't have enough 
narrative aside from like the bee movie and movies since the bee movie really pointing to the importance of bees there's a lot of um notes about it if you watch any like zombie movie any movie about the, the world terror there's always the the news clippings about the bee population dwindling but that's like the, a news clipping and this time in this show there's an entire whole scene that both drives the plot and reminds the entire audience about the importance of bees whether it's today or in 2100 and i think that's it does use them as a weapon which can definitely be seen as a negative yeah but also it does take the time to highlight their total importance overall and I think but but no i i admirable. will i will go in a little bit further randy i i do think that there should have been a bit more like I said, there should have been a bit more genetic engineering involved. Because, because let's be honest, the, the wasp is that is literally the Camaro driving trailer park king trash of the bug world. They are they they serve no purpose. They're annoying. All you just want to get rid of them all. They they this is you, you realize you realize we just lost all of our wasp subscribers. I'm just saying. Right riddance. Now. I don't want that crap here. Like it's it's just. Oh man, like like I, I I swear that the the wasp was designed by Satan because it serves no ecological purpose. It gets unlimited stings, which is bullshit and overpowered. It it, it just it bites you too. It doesn't just get to sting you; it gets to bite you. Like what the purpose wasp, does this bug the wasp serve? Does to remind you what happens when you disrespect bees for so long they just turn into hostile enemies okay but they also eat bees becomes a, a permanent enemy they're attacking yeah. bees too like, they are in themselves like no look, the look. result of the gods gave us bees to remind us of how wonderful and tasty the world can itself. be but they also gave us wasps to remind us how terrifying the world can be a little too terrifying sometimes like a bee gets right. one sting and it has to sacrifice its life. A wasp? Nah, it's going to town on your face. Bullshit. <laughs> it's bullshit. Uh anyway. Randy yeah. writes in, uh I realize what you're saying, Poyo, but like I said, I'm biased. Let's just say I feel no pity when a solo wasp lands on a frame and I place that frame with the wasp along with it in the hive. Twenty <laughs> Twenty thousand versus one fight. I've yep. seen those videos and those are awesome because, well, one, they're killing wasps, and two, it's a wasp getting owned by bees. Uh, no, man, bees are are when it comes to defending their hives, they are hardcore individuals. Oh yeah, I respect the heck out of them. Yeah, you know? same. Very, very much, very much the same. As far as unified tribes go, bees are the standard that we should all dream to achieve. They work together to support each other, and then they also fight to save even just one of them. Yeah. So I think that. So by the end of the. Uh... Oh, great. I'm blanking on the guy's name. I really should pull up the what, wolf? page before. No. Um. The, back in uh, 2032, the town. Oh, the the brother or the the drug boss? The drug boss. Well, do we even know he's a drug boss? Oh wait, yeah, mm-hmm. he's a he's a pharmaceutical boss. Oh, it's way more than implied. It uh, like it's regularly right. he's he is. The, I we practically walk through a meth lab. Is, 
Like, yeah, that's we, right. We did. Well, yeah, I, and, that's right. and now she's I'm buying. She's like, I can't afford to go to Farmer John or Pharma John or whatever they called it to get the the pill made and like given sold to them. So she has to go to Mr. Pickett's boys drug so, dealers. So uh, fan mail from yeah. Randy. Is that windshield washer fluid, Corian? He's referring to my drink. Uh, no, I am enjoy. You know, the problem with being a witch is routinely you wind up with weird mystical creatures moving in. So I had to get rid of a Smurf village and juicing Smurfs is probably one of my favorite hobbies. So, you know, I'm drinking Smurf tonight. Ah, I could have uh, thought that was Romulan Ale. Ah, would have worked too. No! Um, <laughs> but the thing is, with with uh, with Pickett, um, I don't yeah, know where they're going to take this character, to be honest, because by the the fact that he so willingly agreed with Fisher's proposal without really giving too much pushback, see, that's the mark of good writing is when you can take a Wait, villain and you he can didn't kind agree of... to it without pushback. He demanded to know the stick, and he like. He just didn't like, like. We even see him not like the euphemism. Like he he paints this. And he's like, okay, that doesn't bother me. And then he like he shows him how much what that euphemism really meant in terms of like I'm not talking to anyone right now. All of your boys have like com jammers and stuff like that. You you see us just talking, right? And at the right yeah. there just threw the glass in front of him like that's a level of like it in, in all forms of security that is the worst opponent ever one that can talk to his teammates and you can't hear well i mean it goes even beyond that when you think about it because it's not just talking to your buddies they know your thoughts as you're having them right so if you're sitting there you're literally having a discussion between I mean imagine being able to have a discussion between your your team going well I'm thinking this is going to turn into violence let's get ready for violence and everybody gets that same thought everyone gets that same feeling everyone gets that same emotion at the same time that's a hard thing to deal with because well, and everybody, then everybody is gets insane. that so you get theirs too yeah. And also, then you get the guy next to you, is in the guy, and so it's like however many people in the squad compounded on top of the squad. So it's a it's a compound interest yeah. of emotion um, and focus. Real quick, Arende would like to know, Corion, do you have an orange cat by chance? I do not have an orange cat. I do, however, have a gray and black cat. So I you know, close. <laughs> Somebody, I've got a yeah, I've got a tuxedo tabby in a void. Um. But no, what I was trying to get at was he, he they're, they're putting him off to be like this big crime boss and, and, you know, he's just one bad guy that, you know, they got rid of the hell Satans and then now they bring him in and it's like, I, I think the way that this one's going to be written is they're going to kind of turn him into more of an anti-hero in the fact that, yeah, he sucks, he's corrupt and he's bad, but he's also got different motivations behind what he does and we kind of see this in the beginning when the fact that they don't you know he doesn't immediately go oh i'm being offered money to go whack the fishers okay no he goes all right he well first of all he gives him to his trophy wife 
who the, she then takes the situation and analyzes it, gives him some options, and he thinks about them. And then he's given a different option, which he then... Wait, yeah. no, first, first he... So, like, I don't think he's going to be an actual anti-hero. I think he is going to He might to be chaotic be, neutral. I, I really get he is uh, logical evil. I can and see that, too. In, in the sense that he's not an, a, a villain... But he's a mob. I really get the sense that he is a, a Sopranos type character. He has a code. It's very not legal. But as long like, and that's what we noticed, especially when uh, the brother Fisher Burton uh, goes to meet him. He goes, "Look, we're in a bit of a situation, but it doesn't impact any of you." Yeah. Like nothing about your work, nothing about your business, and you see Prickett like hype up like okay this person is coming to me telling me they're dealing with rogue elements and i've met the rogue elements i didn't believe them to be rogue elements i believe them to be cops like setting me up you know for murder like and, and he and he tells the wife that he's like can't go back to cabo because 90 percent or havana because we're 90 percent sure it's like dhs being like hacked and stuff like that and then for burton to know about that traffic know about that conversation and then to remind him this is not invading on your territory but it's expensive and they are willing to pay a lot of money to so pay you more with a guarantee that as long as you help me stay alive you're gonna keep getting more that's the big thing that i think we see about prickett's character is he's not a villain he's just a criminal yeah, the, he's a criminal with a personal code according to that criminal and so the, yeah he i really do see him being capable of switching sides at any moment but not purely because he's evil yeah like it's yeah, all the, gonna be his motivation yeah the way i would like to describe it is in the world in a world of black and white morality he works on more of a yellow and green morality like it's just alien to what the current of the rest of the situation is he works under his own rules. He has his territory that he wants. And so long as he's allowed to remain the big fish in his pond, he's fine with it. It's as soon as something tries to invade his pond or take it over, that's when he's going to act. Right. And I think the fishers did absolutely the right thing by one, coming to him from a place of respect two, making it worth his time to do nothing. Three, Which laying is, their cards on the table. Yeah, exactly. And laying out exactly what will or will not happen, depending on his choices. And then leaving him to let and then letting him decide what he wants to do. And and paying him right yeah. afterward. Like they he yeah. didn't say you'll be paid by the end of the week. He said, No, the money is in route. Send your boy to go pick it up. It's being printed. Right? Like <laughs> like because we, we, we saw a time dilation of the they bought the the fabrication store facility they now are printing the money to pay this gentleman and and obviously the way money is printed it's not it, it, there's it's apparently it legal to, be, to do like, so nobody that got way. mad about it yeah. yeah like he didn't go did why did you pick it up from the print facility like you know the print facility can print money and there's a code that like you have that pulls from your account somehow right so like and that to me was like the really fun thing is like they have set this show up that there are certain rules 
that they aren't going to tell you, but they work so well with just, yeah, I guess I could see a future where that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, and you can put your own headcanon on it, but it's not necessarily destroying the plot in any way, no. you know? And also like, like, I, like, I like how we all have similar points about this episode. That is what was intriguing about it versus like getting into the nitty gritty and like we're all like well i care more about this like no like this story all drew us to the same like these are the things that are worth talking about but also there's also fun stuff around it that may or may not make logical sense but it's just fun stuff because it's clear what the main points are yeah Yeah, there, there was another little piece i thought was interesting and that's the android cop i was about to bring that segue into that next yeah yeah um And here's why I found it so interesting. We have been informed a few different ways that the population in 2100 is significantly reduced. And I think that it's interesting to see that certain jobs have been handed over to AI or whatever you want to call it simply because they're in a situation of such a manpower shortage they, it looks like they almost had no choice and the well, fact that wolf was so adept at playing to this cop shows a lot about his upbringing and his character development too and about how long the the cops have been androids mm-hmm. i almost wonder if it's actually something a bit more politicized than that okay in that uh, humans are basically forbidden from being regular cops now because they have too much bias. And so to remove the bias protocol, they now operate on an Android, which is scary as well. That's not the answer either. I mean, well, personally you, in the future, I think can... a hybrid workforce of robots and humans is the best way to go for policing. They, they did a show on that called Almost Human, which what did you... lasted one season and was amazing and was some pretty good sci-fi, but Fox well, is what too did you guys think about the the constable's justification for well that's my concern about like for showing up at all it was like you deviated from our algorithm yeah like who wrote that algorithm who's running that <laughs> algorithm like and i so I, I get this like it's a double it's a double political entendre like it's saying like yeah if we do get rid of the human element we also get rid of the individual i can walk where i want to walk without well, we, being we, followed element. we get rid of the human element and then we also get rid of the humanity element yeah and that's I, the danger for me my thought is is like like it, it, the hybrid for for cops should be two robots for every cop so the cop can way more act like a liaison of justice and have two badass robots to back them up at any instance. Yeah. So, so Arendes, the, the robots are doing the recording. Cops are like the actual officers doing their job with always having bulletproof backup. Yeah. Arende's fan letter ties into that. Uh, Arende writes in, not just manpower shortage, dangerous jobs can result in loss of life. Less humans equals loss of life becoming more harmful. So, yeah. Like what you're yeah. saying, the, the cop basically... Uh, <laughs> cop could even just work remotely from home at that point and just have a body cam on the robot to do business with um and, and or be a peripheral also, basically right we can also recognize that if if she wasn't a it's peripheral, turning into a better idea now the cop wouldn't have 
like had any more justification than oh you deviated from the algorithm and 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 that's what your point was Corey on that like wolf gave a justification for the deviation to the algorithm that the constable was like oh, okay i don't belong here anymore like yeah. i was here because it was weird it was weird because of human love i understand that have a good day yes you can leave yeah it's like human love is inherently illogical therefore okay and and it was fast too it was like that that kiss was all the robot needed to be like ah i get it oh he's kissing it all oh oh biological romance past proposition infinity damn it algorithm could deviate (laughs) justification acquired air computes yeah. He, he kissed the ro- he kissed the peripheral. Ah, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, My I'm not sure if I'm down with in. robots dating humans here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pass prop infinity now. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> the robots are anti-interracial. Yeah, they're 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 against robosexuality or something like that. You know. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a That's future on my cousin, not your robot. Yeah. <laughs> That is not your human. You may occupy my cousin's body to get around and from the convenience of your couch, but that's it. No (laughs) touchy-touchy. It is on AI of you to try to collectively communicate this device. (laughs) Yeah, remember, man. Remember what the space pope said. Don't date robots. (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out Futurama was just telling us a lot more about what happens with AI when they create exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> on the money. Yeah, well, Futurama, one of the smartest shows ever to be on TV, man. One of the smartest really? dumb yeah. shows, yes. Well, no, it's the smartest show, like with a dumb character hey. that really messes with everything. The first five seasons were arguably smart, and then the movies were well, they were the movies, but they were I've, fun after the, the the second season or the second iteration was just more dumb and and then i'm i'm fearful of this third iteration coming the, the, up which is going to be even dumber well to me i but think we'll that's see. where the smart really came in was the smart made the universe real and the dumb was just the characters operating within this hyper realistic universe and I, that's what i love about it is like it it was less I'm about rick and more morty and that's what made it so fun because i think like when you have a rick type character it really does make the plot necessary whereas with futurama the plot didn't exist because none of them were capable of holding and let alone entire plot yeah and yeah. that made it more fun yeah the first five seasons are still the best of that of that show every time i rewatch it it's always the same it's like oh, oh man this is book. hilarious I... and then i get to the movies and i'm like yeah, all right. Those are, and then season seven Where do you starts. Watch the movies, Hulu. Uh, are they on like the Hulu? Uh, like just in a sorry, row? the movies are now officially season six. Oh, so okay, season yes, six is all of the movies. I think they're so funny. Now that being said, I, like I thought because Bender's there was like a nice score. change of pace for a minute. Oh, I would actually argue that Bender's Big Score was a fantastic classic sci-fi plot. Oh, absolutely. I oh, think dude, it's because you get that most of what they did was rewrite plots and obviously change all of the characters in the setting towards like the later years. And that's where it got really fun is if you could tie the episode to the movies that they were writing over. 
that's why I enjoyed them so much. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, we, we can definitely... Also, uh, one last piece on it. I also feel like Bender's big score made Jurassic Bark that much more painful. I disagree. I think it retconned it for the better. No, no, no. I mean, painful as in it hurt my heart to realize all the terrible things that just transpired. Right. Oh, I thought it was great because Seymour got to got to spend his entire life with his master in the end. Yeah. So no, that that was one of the better retcons in my video. Um, yeah. Arende says I like Futurama, Rick and Morty as well. Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I love oh, all yeah, of Futurama. No. It's just seasons one through five are clearly the best. And then for me, uh, Rick and Morty season one through three, and that's it. I I love them both separately because they are different sides of the same coin like i really think that like rick and morty is where the doctor is way more aware and and even like futurama like it's really that he's old it's not that he's unaware it's that his body is incapable of moving at rick's body speed and i think that's really fun like i don't see them as separate but equal i see them as two variants of the same idea and a really fun invariance in that set like thought especially because they go their own ways i do think rick and morty finally embraced adult swim and that's what makes a lot of people turn away but i love that i think they're so funny well some future content we'll have to discuss futurama and maybe seasons one through three of rick and morty but uh so some other things with the peripheral like yeah i mean it was an exposition heavy episode but it wasn't boring i haven't haven't been bored at all like i said it wasn't a it wasn't a heavy dump it was legit like we're gonna give you plot the 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 investigation into where alita has disappeared to is ongoing but clearly it's a slow it's a low point in the plot and because of that we're gonna give you context and that yeah. context is going to be equal to the plot scenes as the plot scenes move on. And it was so comfortable to me. Like, it really felt oh. like people are learning how to write again. Oh, one one thing I do want to comment on. Having spent so much time around military people, especially post uh, their military career, the the scene with the uh, sergeant who's missing two legs and, an, and a hand and the brother Fisher. Did that not seem like it was legitimately written by some genuine dudes who've been in it? Because that is the kind of ball busting I see all the damn time. I love how real the whole setup was because there was the perceived man, I shouldn't acknowledge all this stuff. But then as soon as... Here, let me give you a hand. And he meant it genuinely at first, only to realize, oh, what did I just say? Was it, do you need a hand? Because he was offering to help when he should... Like, like, and and he knew that that was like, man, any normal person, this is going to fuck them up. Has he gotten too normal? Oh, and and then like for for the switch to come on and they just go off on each other. That's what felt so real is because that is how it is for military people too. Is like some of us do revert entirely back to normal and get offended at easy stuff, whereas others of us look like those guys but aren't those guys. Well, also I'm I'm going to uh, Arendi writes in uh, hands down the best scene, but um tish, Arendi. 
if I had points to award you that mattered at all, you would be winning the internet today because you would be taking all my internet points. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that whole thing. And it was also just a nice middle finger to the sensitive, you know, pussyfoot culture because it's regardless of the circumstance, whether or not they were war buddies or whatever the reason for their background, they were clearly comfortable enough with each other to make some funny jokes. And and well, it played off. It, it was executed I don't think it well. Was so much as like a middle finger to to sensitive. I think it was a middle finger to pain. That too. Like everything he said is everything that everybody thinks everybody feels bad about but also like everything he thinks and his like inner speak is yelling at him all day every day so for his brother who just got him a job who just like secured him a a, a more noble future you know obviously they're on a serious mission that has all of the qualms of like only the strong survive and this guy has one arm how can he be strong and he's being respected equally strong he's also going to get his balls busted equally strong but also a guy that's like busting his balls who's knows all of this context and knows all of this feeling so he's trying to decide if this is the leadership move to make is granted the authority to make it and and that's what the whole scene was it's a middle finger to awkward and, and also, that's what a lot of people are doing. They're just letting awkward win mm-hmm. more often than not. Also, I'm just going to say for the record, um, you know, if I wind up with a, a house in London in 2100, I'm totally going to take a page out of Alita's handbook and just turn it into an elaborate escape room because that's 100% oh. what her place felt like. <laughs> not only an elaborate <laughs> escape room, like why was it so connected to the main character? She's like, so that only had she a could find it, it. It was stuck at two fifteen. Like, why would it? Like, well, that's what I'm talking about. Is like, why does Alita want her to follow her? Like, that's what this story is telling us. Like, that that's the most obvious question, right? But also simultaneously, like, name ten shows in the last two years that have so eloquently asked you to ask that question. Oh, and then and then there's that small detail about the peripherals that they they need to be placed in their uh in some kind of biopath every couple of weeks because they deteriorate or shut down and, and dude i thought that was such an interesting twist from westworld okay. they dry out as they sit there like well because like you got to see the correlation to the westworld pilots or not pilots but characters the robots the animatronics um and so like I like that this was a significant deviation. Like, they dry out, and you can see all these, like, tendrils about, like, what controls the face mechanisms and stuff. And they yeah. looked like zombies. Yeah. It was so grotesque. Um, but and interesting. Ar- Arende writes in, Look, I injured, injured my shoulder last Friday. My dad called me a cripple. That's the kind of humor um, that runs in my family. Yeah, look. Um, my kind of people. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that humor. No, there isn't. Giggle and then heal. Oh, yeah. No, look, after the fencing accident I had where I literally got stabbed through the knee, um, I won't tell you how many Skyrim jokes I endured from the, well, you took a sword to the knee. 
um, arrow to the knee. I just saw that joke again, just as a meme for random. Like, <laughs> yep. that's so, so funny. You know, I, I took that for for a good, you know, two years until Skyrim was fully played out. You know, and then they released it on everything up to and including ATM machines, apparently. So, yeah. That that's really what I think. That's why I say it wasn't an fu to the sensitive culture because oh, it was. It, it, it would well, no, it's an fu to the pain showing the sensitive culture that they can also say fu to it. They can also joke about it. You can find humor in your suffering, and when you find humor in it, it makes it a lot less painful. Yeah, like I think that's the thing that military knows best is because we suck the suck. We also laughed in that. And while we were laughing in it, we got through it, and we're still here today. So if we can get more humor out there, get more jokes, because that's what the FU to the sensitive culture is. Stop making us not laugh at it. Stop telling us to stop laughing. I, I would Some also of us say are that laughing to heal. Yeah, I would also argue that the best way to put it would be Gallo's humor is completely all right when it's actually in jest and not being hurtful. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why I say this show set the context so appropriately. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't making fun of a cripple guy on his way out of the bar. He was making his brother who he just hired to protect his sister. Yeah. And everybody and knew so everybody like, respected each other. Yep. And but the jokes for even us, the audience, so much funnier is like, they're laughing equally, so there is no shame in us joining in. Yeah. Obviously, we don't have the authority to make those jokes to that person because we don't have that relationship, but we can laugh at them laughing together. That's it. And that's what made it better. And and I think that's why it can't be wholly critiqued as an FU to sensitive culture. Instead, it's a... Uh, yeah, guys, I wasn't saying it was wholly it all that. It was definitely, a, it. No, a, huge, definitely I, a huge, mind your own damn business to learn to laugh. I would argue that it was restoring respect into discourse. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There Definitely. you go. It was a major restoration to respect in the discourse. Yeah. Definitely. Showing that the discourse so. can be funny despite the <laughs> gravity. Any any final thoughts on peripheral? Anything that we didn't cover that, that you guys think is noteworthy? I, well, I think we did a pretty good... I'm curious about what's going on with the mom because they did take a major point to go like, what do you think the doctor's going to say at her next appointment when she can see <laughs> right, like I feel like we kind of glossed over that because it was in the first like minutes of the episode, but also yeah. like, what is because they call them stubs because as far as they're concerned, up until the point that they met them is when their histories align. So, what is their interaction doing to the future of the main characters? Future, because oh. now here comes mom saying, "Well, I took uphill." And who owns the pharmacy now. Or not the pharmacy, but the place next to it. And all that stuff, like, how much is this future going to boost or destroy the main future? I think that... I like that thought. Yeah. Uh, I think that they're going to have to try to play it off as some sort of, oh, it was a miracle or something. Um, Well, that's what I'm curious about is because it doesn't seem like anything is going on... That, that creates implications there's for miracles. So much, there's so yeah. many implications about the cops. Like, 
He was so ready to believe that he was being set up by the cops in his super secret private VR simulation. So like, because he like thought that, that tells us that everything is being watched, especially the pharma code that printed this one pill. Like, that's what I'm curious about is like, I don't think there's any way to just play it off handsomely as a miracle. Arendi writes in too much control. Arendi writes in diverge is the word I believe you're looking for, Poyo. Well, yeah. stub is what they Divergent. use in the in the show. There, yeah. Well, no, John. Well, yes, John was struggling the with divergent yeah, timeline. They diverge from from Variance. yeah till the point. That, well, so they claim. I'm not entirely convinced yet. Um, I, I think it could all be the same timeline, but there's there's no way to know just yet. Um, but yeah, I am looking forward to episode four. I'm not excited oh, yeah, that I'm... this show only has uh, eight episodes. That's that's a bit of a bummer. But it is still so far three out of eight are seven, uh, three seven out of eight are solid sure. seven so far. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm hooked. Also, call me Chato. I uh, wrote on one of your episodes about this show definitely keep listening to our follow through because I think this show is phenomenal. I think you got a lot of stuff wrong in terms of how they set it up. It is very much like a video game rather than like a standard TV show and I think that's where the disconnect for you has come in in your review. I really think this show is going a lot of places positive and you should stay tuned with us. I, I would actually also say Arendi uh, I really appreciate that you're watching along with us and uh, you know, keep it up. We're, we're going to keep watching and we hope you do too. Absolutely. And I, I, I uh, just in response to your last message, I, because I gave none, uh, that probably is what I meant. I struggle with words and I do appreciate you jumping in there and saying that that's what I like to do when I'm joining in live chats. And it's really fun to see someone else likes that too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. All right. So if we are done here, and I believe it is time to move on to our ad break. (laughs) This stream is uh, brought to you by CNC Celery. They are helping to keep the lights on here so we can continue to bring you this awesome content and discussion. Um, CNC Celery, they provide all of your Civil War reenactment needs from uniforms to various props to gear, whether you want stainless steel gear because you're a career reenactor and you're going to be out there all the time, or you want the authentic tin gear, they've got it all. Now, you might be wondering, why would such a place be, why would we be sponsored by such a place? Well, they also are the primary provider for a lot of the different reenacting regiments, as well as, of course, one of the providers for costumes for movies. Um, huge list of movies on their website that you can look at and see that they're a part of, uh, ranging from and with upcoming movies such as Apple TV's Emancipation and uh, another uh, title. Uh, called I Heard the Bells, but they've also provided clothing for 1883 and just all kinds of different productions. These are the go-to guys for that stuff. Please check them out, ccsutlery.com. Tell them the Ryder Brothers sent you, 
and uh, once we know that 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 this sponsor's working, we could probably uh, talk about making some deals. Um, I forgot to look for it earlier, but H. Marie actually started. Uh, I don't know where to find him, and I don't want to spend time trying to find him. But she actually started selling night nightcaps, knitted nightcaps, and they are on the CC Sutlery website. And uh, so, yeah, please check them out. Please find them. Please buy them so that she can make more and sell them. Um, Arende writes in, next shows I'm looking forward to are the new seasons of Dragon Prince and his Dark Materials. The series was so much better than the film. <laughs> Bro, his Dark Materials, that one's so fun on HBO. Oh, man, I really like that show. It's visually just... So, I haven't checked it out yet, but is it is but is it closer to the books? I've never read the books, um, ah. but I've been. I did watch somebody do a follow along, and they were like, I, I want to say it was like eighty twenty. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I think it's more like they're messing with plot points. And not mess, not really messing with like narrative. Like they're keeping yeah. the central narrative, but messing with the plot points. So, but and Arendi says yes, it is. Okay, awesome. I mean, uh, I was not a super huge fan of the anti-theist theme moving through the series, but I will freely admit it was a very cool universe they built, and a very interesting way to create a narrative and create a story so there were things i liked about it and things i didn't really well in the hbo series like it is it's not so much a plot point as it is a major character point it's like one group has to contend with that while the rest of the groups are contending with other things that belong to them and it's really well done it's really fun to follow and visually like it's really pretty yeah everything from like no i mean like they do this super sick like cut the universes open the multiverse open and the way that it shines and the way that it's done in the like passing in terms of wormholes it's the best i've ever seen Okay. In live action, for sure. Well, speaking of wormholes, speaking of wormholes, John forgot to go through this week. Got behind on episodes, so I'm behind on episodes. If you want to forget, I tried. I just am behind. If you want to bail, I won't be upset. But that's entirely up to you, because I mean, we are, you know, going to be talking spoilers. So totally your decision. Um, Rende says the respect. Or the respect the essence of the books unlike some other series is cough wheel of time cough uh, rings of power uh halfway through the eye of the world book so much better okay yeah. uh cool that's good to know yeah i heard the expanse was also very accurate to the book so i need to yes I need it to is read the book series and i need to catch up on the expanse but the problem is it's over so i'm not in a hurry but anyway Predating the expanse, sort of. In the super hurry, I loved that show. Okay, but Deep Space Nine. Another show that I absolutely love. We take a trip through the wormhole to 
a planet in the Gambit Quadrant with the Kai, because that's what you do in 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 Deep Space Nine is you take the religious, uh, I guess you could leader, monarch, leader, oligarch, whatever, space pope. Yeah, yeah, the the Bajoran space pope, but she's only for Bajorans. Yeah, that guess she technically would be the space. There's pope. multiple colonies. So yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, there's already Bajorans in the Federation. Duh. Um. They just say take her to... And they've achieved spatial technology. The other side. And on the other side, what do they find but a distress call? Because every good episode of Star Trek begins with a distress call. And they come to this planet that ends up pulling them... Or they find this planet that's surrounded by satellites. The satellites knock out their power source, forcing them to crash. Um, and uh, in the process... There's an IMDb for this. Uh, Corio, do you want to take it from here, though? Yeah, so in the process, um, they discover two factions on the planet that have been warring since forever. And the really unusual thing about this is no one on this planet can die. And so they've had no reason to stop the war for hundreds of years and hundreds of deaths. And... This one, this is one of my favorite episodes of the season one. By this is also, far. I do want to say real quick, this is also an important episode for season eight. Yes. Um, and really, it sets an important tone throughout the series. Because one could make the argument that without Kyle Paka's leadership, lots of problems happen on Bajor without her you know, down the road. Her leadership was absolutely vital to getting through the occupation and should have been vital to going forward from here. We got the impression early on, all the way from the first episode, how wonderful and deep and spiritual and at peace, despite the world around her, Kaiopaka was. And a stabilizing element. Well, on this planet, while she's trying to convince people not to fight and to work together to mutually get off this you know annoying little rock what happens she gets she gets injured and now she's going to be stuck on the planet for forever as well because if they leave the planet the effect of never being able to die will no longer work and she will die so they're going to lose Kaiopaka to this world and the implications of her staying and trying to bring peace to these factions that have been warring for hundreds of years. On top of that, the implication that her world really does need her. And without her, things are going to spiral out of control in short order. You know, is definitely felt. On top of that, we're not even sure if the rest of the crew is going to be able to make it off. I mean, imagine being in a world where everyone has decided that OSHA compliancy is just no longer necessary because who cares? We can't die. Um, and suddenly you're in a scenario where if you die, you're stuck on this planet. Well, everyone wants to go home to their families. So now they have to be super careful about every little thing. I mean, how worried would you be in a world like that where there's constant warfare? Everybody hates each other because, you know, when you've been roommates, I guess, with an enemy faction for, you know, 12,000 years or whatever ridiculous number it is. You know, there's going to be some bad blood running around and you're kind of stuck in the middle of that. 
which i mean i don't know if you've ever been in a situation where roommates are fighting but it's not a it's not a comfortable place no and you know here here's poor kyle pocket trying to bring peace to this while everyone else is just trying not to get stabbed gruesomely by everyone else and i think it's an interesting and a very poignant episode where the most spiritual the most deep person is most deeply affected by the trauma of this world but chooses to roll up her sleeves and try to help it yeah. and try to save it regardless. Yeah, I, I love a lot of the, uh, the... Did you have a question, John? Now that we've spoiled it for you. Well, so... No, I'm actually watching it as we go. I decided <laughs> I'm going to see if I can... Try it at 2x speed so you can squeeze um, both in. But I, I like a lot of... Well, I like a lot... No, just this one episode because it's so important. Um, But I will try if I can. The uh, the thing that I'm hearing a lot of is like, think about what that does for intergalactic civilization. If the Joran population, as they're they're not necessarily fully Starfleet Starfleet type or human level of pervasiveness yet, and so because of that, they're becoming they're growing into it. But there's a heavy heavy relationship with their space pope right and so i think a lot of the things i heard based off of what you're describing corion is that like she is landlocked in order to maintain her her uh, ability to live forever and in doing so she is basically like setting a center for all future bajoran religion and Bajorans as a whole as like they travel space like she is now like no I've been here since the beginning no they can't even and I'm communicate. stuck right here at the center yeah. well they can't even communicate with her on this little backwater planet in the gamma quadrant she is stuck on that planet uh, it's and they're not going to be able to or a moon yeah yeah she's oh. stuck on this little the grimy butthole well, of space and is not going to be able to communicate out to the rest of Asia. But nobody's like, I'm going to get there eventually. But did anybody um, like leave her there? Like get back on a shuttle and go home? Well, I mean, I don't want to ruin the episode for you. Yeah, you should watch but, the episode and then we'll find out when we play season eight I, with your new At this gaming point, break. I deserve it for being late behind. Like, okay. it's a great episode, so, but the, like. The basic my, premise my is, is that, like, the rest of the shuttle crew make it home, or the rest of the runabout crew make it home, but they have to leave Kai Opaka because she cannot go with them. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, is like, they know where they left her, and now yeah. it's more about eventually reestablishing connection to her for the greater Bajor population, but that's not a impossibility it's more of an when well it, it think about it this way if the, something okay imagine if you will let's take um the christian pope if the christian pope's plane got destroyed and he wound up on a desert island and for whatever reason couldn't leave they'd elect a new pope right well but this is where it differs do they know is immortal and they yeah. witness her immortality so far so see that's where it differs is like if the message comes that the immortal pope is 
marooned on a single planet trying to help that planet our job is to get to them and help spread the Bajoran message that seems more like plausible because it's not a leap in faith because they've witnessed the immortality versus like the Christian Pope is clearly not immortal yeah like, they but, only elect the guy closest to death and but the, like, the basic premise is for all intents and purposes going forward Kyle Paca is dead to Bajor and the right, there's no there's no I like to me there's no like belief that they're not going to fall into chaos with the remoteness of their pope but there to me there's like that inkling of like the persistent faith will prevail which sets up a really cool potential for like yeah. how a galactic pope might exist is like they are stuck at a center point in the galaxy that now allows this faith because it's between two quadrants in a wormhole allows this faith to to grow even bigger i don't know if deep space Nine is like willing to commit to that story but that that i think that that story it, just it's not really a... naturally based off the way they set it up no uh the the way it winds up setting up is that because kai opaka was effectively the moral rudder that kept bajor on the straight and true without her leadership without her constant guidance they're operating effectively rudderless until they get until they can elect a new space boat one that can be there for Bajor, one that can take care of everybody. The Kai is required to basically stay on Bajor. Like, they can leave for certain stuff, but they're not supposed to operate off-world. That's why it was such a big well, deal to take what a I got from the, the wormhole at From all. the intro episode, the Kai clearly states that she is fulfilling a prophecy she knows she has to fulfill. She knows she's sending them into turmoil. Yeah, even so, though like it's technically breaking the tradition of the Kai, and so like, like to me, what I get is obviously they're not going to time lapse thousands and thousands of years to see how this Bajor population responds over time scale, but like theoretically, anybody you know over a Kurtzman Trek writing new Trek could do that and. Do not wish such evil the upon the world. And not have to steal. Yeah, no, 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 no. We well, want Kurtzman to stay away from Bajor. I feel like at this point, if we can, if we can figure out full plots for them, then when they put in their characters to fulfill those plots, we don't have to care because we know the plot line is going to be. No, I'm going to borrow a, a and, and Bajoran. That's, that's why I pitch. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm going to be a bit of a Bajoran. Um, you know, like the Bajoran terrorist we saw earlier. I want Bajor for Rick Bermans. Okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, but even I he just, sucked in his own way. Stop trusting. Uh, I thought he was alright. He was a bit more alright, but he was still I out of touch with, to with female characters and what their role True. should be in Trek. True. I want, more, I want more people to start trusting in the idea of plot writers and character writers being two separate things. Like, like if that's how DMs for D and D work, like there is the, the the guy who runs the whole event, and you get to create your character, and you get to pretend all the stuff you want to pretend, and you want to write the frilly backstory with the experiences that you experience, 
But like, we really got to start hiring plot writers so that somebody can make all your frilly nope. characters make sense. Nope. And hard, at, at hard disagree. Makes sense. Hard disagree. At least they're a, a competent writer can well, do no, cause, both. Cause I don't, I don't. Oh no, a competent writer can do both, but I don't foresee the future managers, aka Kurtzman, like abandoning his drive for diversity. So if he's not going to abandon his drive for diversity, just add a new role called the plot writer. That's not going to fix the problem. Helps us help them. That's not going to fix the oh, problem. You don't need to hire a plot writer. You need to put plot at the pro- top of your what priorities you ahead of diversity. But that's how we get a whole new job that doesn't have to worry about characters. You don't need no no that you, that's how you get more crappy you writers. Heard Dungeon Masters. No, have you heard Dungeon Masters? They write the greatest experiences for their players. They so create get scenarios. People, the characters can suck whether they suck or not, but universes with people that are dungeon masters writing them i think that job yeah is so actually really that fun that one. job has already existed american in trek, horror though. story really embraced it yeah but i mean that job already well, know, existed it, it though in trek it's called gene roddenberry and he did a fantastic job right i mean right and that's that's what i mean and, and i think that's also along the lines of this episode with the kai because the kai didn't leave anyone in a position where their sole job was managing plot managing narrative like let other people try to manipulate it with their adaptions to modern society as society becomes modern and have somebody who's in charge of maintaining the through line because if you have somebody in charge of maintaining the through line eventually the through line can fit everybody because the through line makes sense as a universe and our yeah, universe but that's supposed yeah, to be the showrunner. I, I don't like any of that but but that's supposed to be what the showrunner is doing right? right so right and that's why i'm saying it just needs to be a written down codified or, position so that, that way no because no, no, that's like just creating more complications show writers that yeah but that's what the showrunner does no right so if so, he's not I'm sorry. his job, right, get rid of him and get, get a new show. Uh, okay, no, yeah, you're just creating more hacks. You're just creating you're creating more hacktivists by doing that because you're creating more nothing positions. I, let let me creating... let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Christopher Nolan is arguably the greatest filmmaker alive right now. Okay? Christopher stuff. Nolan Christopher Nolan doesn't only direct, he writes his stories. He runs the whole everything we see on a Christopher Nolan film is all Christopher Nolan. That's why I have a lot of tremendous respect for the man, because not only is he able to write a plot with almost no holes, The Dark Knight, not only is he able to write strong characters, he's also able to put his vision on the screen. That is competence. But, that is what a standard is, and that's what we need to be many, getting back to. How many not creating more jobs. Services do we, how many streaming services do we have versus how many movies does Christopher Nolan put out in a year? Like, if we can't get a Christopher Nolan in every single director seat for every single thing that we love, the next best option is creating a job that has parameters restricted to maintaining the quality of what we love. I, I don't agree. So that at the very least, we have somebody to blame and replace. This, and this we sounds do. like you're going to get an even more horrible rings of power. 
Well, no, because we have to remember that, like, Kurtzman, that's what I'm saying, is the showrunner, Kurtzman, is supposed to be protecting it, but they're not. So right. what if so get rid of him or replace him with somebody competent. Right, but look at how hard that is in Hollywood. Because if you get rid of a well, showrunner, no, you look like a place to keep showrunners. So showrunners aren't going to apply for the showrunner position. So you're potentially going to get weaker showrunners like Kurtzman to satisfy the role. And then they're going to do it all wrong. And they're going to cost you more money as you're trying to create a streaming service because you're unwilling to just create media for other people's streaming services. So to me, like to skip all of the things that are already ongoing, the answer is to create a position that is bound to the product itself and not to the empire, not to the whims of culture, but everything's bound, bound to the empire, the to the culture of the, culture of right the product. Now. That's that's, right. and that's if you put something to the culture of the product, then suddenly the product can start to grow with the culture, but at the product's pace. Yeah, I because don't. Otherwise, I don't think we that's keep getting this unsustainable happen. growth where things keep spinning out of control. Well, so, Arendi, I think, makes an excellent point in the happen. chat. It's guys. about an option to what could happen, guys. I think Arendi just made the the perfect point to it. Kurtzman would not have been hard to replace. Just ask Seth MacFarlane. Yep. Again, it's the Seth MacFarlane itself, like. Seth no, MacFarlane's another like, example. But, you just asked how we can't fill it with Chris okay. Nolan's. Look at Seth MacFarlane. Look at Seth MacFarlane. He wrote the Orville. That wrote the it. Industry has internal culture and politics that mitigate all of these fast actions. Like, do we not notice that Hollywood lives on its own Hollywood time scale with its own Hollywood laws and Hollywood politics? Yes, I know, and that all needs to be smashed into bits. And that's what I'm saying is rather than trying creating to more jobs and regulations isn't going to smash it into bits. You can't, can't regulate no, no, it into no, no, prosperity. We're trying to convince billionaires to smash it into bits to fix it and be appropriate. But the only thing we can actually convince billionaires to do well, is to create a new position and title that they can put all the blame on. Here's, so if we here's what I'm going to suggest. Position and title that works with us for them. We can fast track a lot of this antagonist forces oh, where look, there's the rich that don't want to change because it's barely John, worth it. John, there's and an there's easy us. way to there's an guys, there's an easy way to solve this. I think you made an excellent example of using D D as a, a system. I'm going to suggest to you something. Try running a D game where the DM is purely responsible for actually getting the plot to move from point A to point B. But all the NPCs for each scenario you're putting your players in is run by other people. <laughs> I would very much like to see how that experiment would work out Me for too. You. I'd almost pay to watch that. <laughs> and that, that in and of itself is a great way to just spawn new information and new writing. But like it's something that I've been bringing up more and more in my thoughts, and it's the idea of decentralized leadership. Like, thing that the Marine Corps has always gotten right, and, and probably for the next, you know, until November 10th on our birthday, I'll keep bringing up stuff that matters to me about the Marines. But, or, is the greatest fighting force in all the world. 
and now, every single military that has ever combated and lived to tell the tale and lived to write an after action report about the tale the thing they say is that the marine corps order and the marines as, as a whole are the most organized group of people that don't follow their own rules ever and that's why decentralized leadership works is when you put a unit in charge of a task and that unit has one task whether it's maintenance operations anything and that's that's their only task they will become the most elite at that task well, and you recycle I, I, them to other units to make them test their metal like the individuals but the job itself and all the jobs around that job that one task are permanent and that's what I say is the best method for all business as a well, whole is instead okay. of having your company John struck by one showrunner, make the product the thing and have people vie for the position of taking that product on. And then when okay. those people John. fail, you can replace increments rather than trying to like, all right. kill all of Star Trek John. again. John. So first we got to address Orende in the chat here. Um, sure. apparently Orende is very much missing playing D&D and to follow that up we keep mentioning D&D and that's cruel and unusual punishment Orende I do apologize if you are looking for a D&D game I can probably find some people for you just hit me up afterwards and we'll do what we can to help you out to find a D&D game now that all being said John I get what you're saying I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying in regards to military action what I'm saying is Try doing it in a try doing it in a collective storytelling situation, and see how it plays it, out. Do it because run a proof I, of concept. And, yeah, I'm saying that, run a proof of concept and yep. let me know. I will say that I have tried similar in in games, and I so will leave it, you to not, your own devices I, to determine what how I mean it goes. By policy and guidance is it's even better because D&D is the ultimate policy and guidance in terms of storytelling where they have all these like booklets but that defeats the purpose that have all the rules well no no so that's what i'm saying is is you could raft the booklet to the product and so the idea isn't to make people restricted in imagining whatever they want to imagine it's about containing it in the universe according to okay. that booklet we got to get back so to ds9 you, like, this, like this, yeah. this is this is John, dragged we're, out we're the only thing i'm going to counter with is is yeah, instead of sure. creating more ridiculous positions there is a simple answer and gene roddenberry provided an answer gene roddenberry specifically created a book for his guidelines that he wanted to specifically follow and they were strictly adhered to until ds9 what ds9 did try to abide by them pretty well they just didn't quite get to him and we'll get to it in a second when we talk about our next episode storyteller and uh, a lot of those those guidelines were very strict and one of the main principles was that the characters couldn't be in conflict so i think what you're trying to get to hmm. yeah that's that usually the sound of a tornado yeah, I know we don't, but that was freaking weird. Yeah, we got a lot of wind. There's some howling going on. It's a little concerning. Um, well, all, all I'm going to say is this. If you end up getting blown to Oz, dude, watch out for my sister's shoes. Will do. 
click your heels. It might twice. just be something moving around, but right. Get out. Um, but yeah, it, it's really making sure that they establish the guidelines, and then you know that that's basically what what needs to be returned to when it comes to Star Trek, and really that's what needs to happen with all intellectual property. And I myself, I do have certain expectations that I'll set up when I'm when I'm ready to share my my stuff around like that. But moving on, or not moving on quite, re- real quick to wrap up Battle Lines. Uh, yes, Battle Lines is a great episode. There's a great uh, uh, a uh, a spiritual comment by Kai Opaka that I think is very powerful that I very I took to heart, kind of almost teared up a bit. And that is when uh, Kira's like, I'm afraid the prophets won't forgive me. And, and Opaka just responds with, well, I think they're just waiting for you to forgive yourself. And, and that was that such a great message to, to say to really change the perspective when when a lot of uh religious and spiritual types like myself we we tend to create mental cages of our own creation uh, of our own imprisoning because uh we get obsessed over oh it was what i'm doing right or wrong and, and am i gonna be forgiveness worthy and so it's 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 nice encouraging hopeful bit to remind you that maybe you just need to forgive yourself sometimes so, the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, the story. We have kind of two stories going on in this episode. Yep. At the same time. Yep. All right. Uh, synopsis from IMDb. Much to his dismay, O'Brien is ordered by Cisco to escort Bashir to a Bajoran village. He is to help out with a medical emergency that endangers the entire community. After arriving, there's only one person sick, the Syrah. He seems very pleased with the arrival of O'Brien and designates him as the One. It soon becomes clear that the Syrah is the only person capable of defeating the Dalrock, a terrible monster that attacks every year after the harvest and doesn't show up on Tricorder. Meanwhile, on DS9, Sisko tries to negotiate between the Puck. Or the Puck? What were they calling it? The Pack? Or the yeah, Paku? The, the Paku. Paku and the Navat two rivaling Bajoran factions. Ninety years ago, they agreed to a river being the border between their lands, but after the Cardassians diverted the river, the Paku territory became bigger. The leader of the Paku, Tetriarch Varys Sol, is a young girl, and Nog and Jake try to impress her. So, Corion, why don't you go ahead and go first again, because I feel like making you first again. Sure. So, I mean, the piece that I really liked about the storyteller um it felt like this wonderful little parable about how sometimes the student doesn't realize they're ready until they're thrown into a crisis where they have to use what they've learned um you know i think we've all experienced that in our own lives in one fashion or another where the job that we the first real job we've gotten out of school where we actually realized some of the stuff that we learned actually did stick and we were able to solve the problems based on what we learned. Um, That's really kind of what came across to me in that part of it. As for the other piece of it, um, we're starting to see that Jake and Nog are into girls. And that's kind of a wonderful... Well, I think that's kind of a, a nice, neat piece that they're going with here. Um you know that we're going to see Jake and Nog as they grow up trying to track down decent people to be with and I think that's a fantastic part of it but also that 
we have this very young leader who's not really ready herself yet. And so in a lot of ways, we're seeing the same story played out two different ways. That we do, she doesn't realize that she's ready for the role, really, until she's forced to be in a crisis situation where she has to be what she's been trained to be. And I think that's a wonderful piece that we're seeing that from both sides. Um, I personally felt that the storyteller component of it didn't super fit into what we know so far about about Bajor and how Bajorans operate religiously and as a people and whatnot. I think this would have worked better if the storyteller was a different group of aliens, personally. But um, otherwise, I thought it did work. I think the Paku and the Narok there um, was exactly what we expect from Deep Space Nine situation, where Ben Sisko is brought in to try to get these disparate factions that are appearing on Bajor to realize, no, 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 just because, you know, like, yes, it was artificial that you guys all agreed to work together to get rid of the Cardassians, but now you need to take that artificiality and make it permanent. We have to do some world, literal world building here, not just like plot world building, but actual, you know, rebuilding, reconstruction of this world. And that's a super important thing. And the fact that they're showing it off now, that we're getting those episodes, those story arcs now, I think is a super important part of why season one needs to be the way it is, even though it doesn't feel as strong as later seasons. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things I like in this episode. It is a little weird that apparently during the occupation, these folks were doing this ritual every harvest and were left alone. Maybe that's how they survived the occupation is when the Cardassians came and they're like, oh hey you're just in time to meet our demon thing and then it showed up and they can't detect it or do anything with it and they're like okay, this is quarantine zone. <laughs> yeah, our, our, our angry cloud monster is going to deal with the Cardassians, so <laughs> You would think they would sick it on them, right? Yeah, so, right? So yeah, it's definitely a little out of place, doesn't make a whole lot of sense it probably it would have worked better if this was a Gamma Quadrant episode and they, they were some different aliens. Um, but it, it's because yeah, yeah it, it really quickly starts to poke a lot of holes. Unless like unless they were deemed a crazy faction that you know they get a distress call saying hey our Sarah's dying we need help and and you know the guy in the Bajoran militia is like hey you know what let's kick this one to Starfleet see what they oh do. man that would have been a great <laughs> cut moment. If it was, like, two guys sitting in the Bajoran militia office in, like, you know, the, the central capital or whatever, and they get the call, and they're yeah. like, who are these guys? And they, like, pull out a book, and they're like, oh, it's these oh, guys. crap. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I left that stupid village years ago. Wait, I got an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, hey, why don't we send this to the Federation and make it their problem? <laughs> That's perfect. Dude. That would have been the best fix to this episode ever. Yeah. And would have, it would have added some much needed humor. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's perfect. That's, man. that's I my, that. that's my canon. That's my canon version now. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, head canon. There, there's two, there's two Bajoran officers who are sitting at their central command who just assign the annoying cases to the Federation simply <laughs> because they don't want to do it. That's exactly. 
That's exactly why, yeah. Hey, Starfleet's here to help, right? Well, let's go down to the bottom of the pile for him. Oh, man. And, and yeah, it's just these two officers that are like Space Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you know? It's, it's just two guys that legit have to do. Yeah. Like, they're like, ah, did we really get that call? Bro, they always say they're, they're here to help. They always say they're going to do it for us. Like, should we try it out? Should we just call Starfleet? Let them know. Yeah, th- this is the first Let's time. This is the first time. Oh, they, they do took that? the whole thing. I'm going home. Well, well this That's... is the first time they do that. And then every time something stupid happens from then on, it's these two guys throwing. Oh, they write it in the log. Yeah. That's just it. This is a situation that they would have been had more information on. Okay. This was one of those episodes that that half of it ages like milk. And it's it's the storyteller half that ages like milk because there would have been okay they're not going to send a runabout because they get a distress call from Pedro. I'm sorry, there's no way that they could just call the Federation directly. That obviously goes through a chain of command. Then Bajor says, "All right, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell them that this village is going to die, and that's it." We're not going to tell them about the crazy religious portion, the fact that they use an orb, all this stuff. It's that, a prank, bro. We're going to let yeah. them find out on their own. That's the that's, only way it makes sense. Yeah, that's Starfleet's problem, or, man. I mean, yeah. or, or they did tell Starfleet all of that, and then Starfleet lets them know, yeah, so they're just going to die. You guys know how? You're not going to believe it. No, no, when you watch they, the episode, they John, you'll, they're going to die. You'll see what or, I'm or, talking about. Or, or even more awesome, this is actually what Cisco did. Like, Cisco had the full story, but he's like, no, I'm going to screw with Bashir. This is more fun. It's a, it's a bonding moment. But this is the part where they do... This is the area in this season where they do violate the Gene Roddenberry Bible. Uh, because they do have some character conflict between O'Brien and Bashir. Now, it's very subtle. It's not in-your-face conflict like you typically expect. It's just, you know, yeah. he's a little bit... Uh, they don't get along. They don't get along. Yeah. And that's clearly, you can clearly see that there's tension. And, and so, yeah. It, it, of course, well, I can't really say anything beyond that. But uh, but no, they, that's what I like about DS9 was that, you know, I, I hate that that Gene didn't get to see this show. Because I'd really like to have seen his opinion on, on whether or not he would have liked it in the end. Or, or maybe he could have likened it to what he wanted Wrath of Khan to ultimately be, which was, okay, yeah, we're going to have more action Star Trek, but we're also going to have philosophical, deep, seated thinking. Because the other half of this episode is still super relevant today. It is a really great uh, lesson in leadership, uh, especially from people who are inexperienced and not ready for those positions. And... It, it shows a lot of determination, the fact that she cares and that she wants what's best for her people. It also shows that she's still very much a kid because of how quickly she gets into the kid shenanigans with Jake and Nog. Um, but overall, it, yeah, I mean, it all comes together. And of course, some some solutions are found and, and it's, you know, the excitement of Federation diplomacy in action. Cool. Um happy coincidence that's something that i really enjoyed about the two episodes that i did watch um the negus to be more precise because 
there was the whole portion uh, where O'Brien and Cisco discuss. Uh, O'Brien's like, I, I think you should watch Jake with Nog. Like, I, I think they should should not be friends. And Cisco explains to him that like, if I get in the way now, it becomes me versus Nog, and I'm not likely to win that one. And O'Brien's like, Are you sure? And and Cisco goes, Yeah, you have a three year old wait till she's 14 like and, and and that's i think something that like i'm hearing a lot about this episode is it's a continuation of that story in terms of and and, and there was the beautiful scene of jake actually teaching nog how to read and yeah. they were doing it in private like it was a crime because for nog it was a crime but for jake it was a service and when cisco sees jake doing that he's like oh boy and proud. Please. yeah well he's not so he's not just proud he is like he it's legitimately yeah i guess proud is the right word i just i want to glorify it more because it was a lot like a dad watching their kid hit a home run <laughs> like i wanted you to play baseball this whole time and here you are legitimately hitting a home run in diplomatic communicate with an alien species and you're literally breaking the hardest barrier which is language because like once you hit a certain age it's like you feel really terrible being stupid and learning a language you are an idiot every time (laughs) and so that's something that like he saw his son doing and i love the way the show set that up and i love the way that that jake is like like doing the right thing so like i'm gonna do it and it's gonna make you feel bad but that's just because you're not listening and, and and then to see that being actually satisfied like jake was he was being a good person he was being the honorable person and to see cisco recognize that and then also recognize why jake was doing it in secrecy so he just fades out to black like it didn't happen because he recognized the importance of it all and then to come now to what you're describing, I think when it comes to the the, the fresh leader, the the thing is with children and being young as a leader is some of our childish antics worked in getting away with stuff. And obviously we don't see it in adult leaders. So sometimes as like a young leader, we think, well, maybe we can pull one over on them by doing something they would only expect a child to do. So it really feels like that's a possibility. Like it would be something that would very fluidly happen in any type of situation. So it's really nice to show that the show isn't like hackneying these scenes together. Like it really is fluid with reality. Oh yeah, no, and, and a lot of a lot of Deep Space Nine really is timeless. I mean, even season one, like it, it's, I would say Storyteller is definitely one of the the season one episodes that I was remembering that that you know is kind of a bit more of a dud, but it's not entirely a dud. We have at least half of a plot that is still timeless, whereas the other half doesn't quite stand up to scrutiny in the long run. Um, but that's yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll freely admit when I do rewatches like just for fun i usually do skip the episode so i'm kind of glad i went back through it and went okay what did i actually like and dislike about this episode? yeah yeah run along home i'll probably be skipping on future rewatches though 
but uh yeah but, but this one no because there's there's enough well, going on in the in the b plot or the a plot really because <laughs> yeah. the a plot's and, more and of a is, c plot isn't that isn't that our ultimate goal with this show it's like we knew that we loved these things when they happened and we knew that they were good and now as we pull them back and we pull the curtain away it turns out we were right rather like like there's so much of the the story in in popular media of like pulling the curtain back and seeing how grotesque everything is and like it turns out it's not as good as you thought it was (laughs) but as we pull out these shows and we go oh wait no our judgment was never bad like yeah there have been hits that have made the box office that we also didn't enjoy even when they were hits while simultaneously like what we called a hit the rest of the world called nerd culture and then we go back and watch it and we're like yeah i don't like this episode on thought and you look at it again and you're like yeah it's not my favorite but it worked better than literally everything i saw this year in star trek <laughs> like, yeah yeah I, like that's i'm that's kind what of i love about like this show as a whole is like we are literally in a way satisfying our judgment of what good and bad is because we pull up the stuff that we think is good and it turns out it's actually well written by the metrics we've been judging this whole time well the thing is ds9 is aging like a very fine top shelf wine it is it, it's even better than i remember even for a new viewer ago. even for a viewer i honestly i'm disappointed even more in a lot of the stuff i've liked because now when I compare and contrast it to DS9, I'm like, like guys, come on. There, there was, there was a clear like, like the growing trend of like, the absent father is the thing that sells. Like that's the story that sells a lot, right? But if you look, yeah, a father figure also sells. Like it, it wasn't one or the other. You could do one story that is one and one that is not. It's not one through line. Like that's the one that sells all the time. Uh, and, Bordas and, and Clyden on the Orville. The one that sells more this year. Yeah, exactly. Bordas, Bordas and Clyden. That's, that's a recovering we got, family. We got the yeah, yeah. traumatic separation. We got good dad and bad dad at the same time. Yeah. And bad dad returned to good dad recognizing his failure Mm -hmm. and that was a whole story arc to a story that none of us wanted concluded like we were fine with Clyden being the bad guy forever but then when we watched him come back as a good father we were like welcome back buddy well I I was sitting there I wasn't sure because the show welcomed him back appropriately well the the thing of it is when he showed up I wasn't sure how it was going to go down I'll be honest right I was like what's he doing here and him just being genuine and honest and loving and realizing where his priorities were made such a difference so impressed acknowledging his failures to the person he wronged Mm -hmm. and owning it like like an adult is supposed to do to their child like like when you're the one that does something wrong as an adult it's more important on you to own that and show your child what owning it looks like so your child does it in the future and so, he did and he did it honorably so fan mail from our ndb5 aged pretty well too uh at least for the quality of the story the only thing that didn't is the cgi Arendi, there is a 4k fix 
in the works for the CGI and B5 that fans have taken on to do, but has been endorsed. So that is being corrected. That being said, I actually really, I went through uh, B5 earlier this year. And you know what? Even with the CG looking primitive computer, like Amiga graphics almost, um, I still really liked it. And I still, you know, it now comes off, the CG now comes off more as charming than uh, bad, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, at least it's consistent throughout the series. On top of that, I think, oh, I was going to say on top of that, um, I bet a lot of people didn't know that the inside of B5, the the O'Neill cylinder sections, they actually tried to do as a practical model, and the CG looked better. So, I I think that's a really funny thing that the older millennials and just the slightly younger Gen Xers that like wine have to like deal with is like y'all legit watch CGI from its inception but as far as I'm concerned like CGI started with Transformers yeah anything less than Transformers is forgivable in terms of like CGI like like okay you guys you obviously just didn't have these engines that's clear I can just automatically look at anything younger than Transformers as charming you tried but then anything after Transformers, if your CGI was made after witnessing Transformers and it's bad, I hate you. Yeah, fair. Because yeah, like, my, my standard is uh, Transformers Star is Trek the standard for good CGI. Same with 2009 Trek. Say what yeah. you will about the movie yeah. and the series. Star Trek 2009. 2009, I thought I was looking through a fucking window. Well, Dude, if your two. space oh, well. isn't that good, if your space isn't that good and your score isn't that good, you honestly didn't try. Um, to me, the line is Battlestar Galactica. Nailed those two. That's a good the, reference. The, the RDM. Yeah, and see, and see that's, that's what I mean. Is like your line in fact that like certain stuff that's old can still cross it. But like to me, I think 2000, like, is it 2006 Transformers? Yeah, the, the abomination that. Very, very clear. Yeah, the. the, like, the ab- that robot 100% looks like it's there. Yeah, the, the Abomination movie that every time you say it adds another toothpick to stab through my heart. Yes, that movie. Yeah. All right. Arende says uh, <laughs> regarding the CGI. I know the pain I cause, but the line. Uh, Arende says regarding the CGI, it's not bad, but oot dated. And yeah. then he says, uh, I'm surprised you know that the station is a, t- a type of O'Neill cylinder. Now many people are. Or, now many people are this or how many people are the first in this how many not many um yeah well i I guess this is the best way to put it um while my father served time in the army his actual schooling was he had a master's in astrophysics not many um and astrophysics conversation complex astrophysics conversations happened at my dinner table so things like o'neill cylinders things like you know i'm a part of the mars society you know these are discussions like complex weird astrophysical engineering conversations are kind of what i do for fun so knowing about o'neill cylinders yeah that's my jam and i'm more versed in fantasy sci-fi 
my wife and I just took a road trip and we were like for like two hours driving and the whole time we were talking about like astral projection and like the astral plane like it was not a conversation like oh do you remember dinner with so and so and like we had alcohol and that was good no it's like no yeah so like I'm pretty sure like the spiritual realm actually is a realm that we currently exist in it just exists at a different frequency than us and that and like we got into these like deep parts of it rather than I'm gonna be excited for what my son is like oh like I'm way nerdier than I thought I was now like when kids are talking about Star Wars and like I love the lightsabers it's like well actually this is how the crystals work uh well I guess the best way to put it is um I've had that experience with my daughter because um you know she's big into you know she got big into pokemon and realized that that kind of translated into being a veterinarian so now she's getting into like animals and taking care of reptiles and and the medical kind of sciencey stuff there and i think that's amazing that you know we started at pokemon and we wound up going towards a potential career path for it. so i you know you're that gonna have wonderful conversation pokemon yeah yeah i love that that that's what i got giddy about is like the fact that 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 infected you as a kid i'm excited it's gonna infect my kid and now it's really funny that it's also infecting yours oh yeah like i i think to me as a nerd that's the culture i want to perpetuate mm-hmm. yeah um all right anything else with the ds9 uh Corione? um well i just i think that the more we watch of season one the more we realize that the implications for what happened in season one really translate later down the line. Yeah. Like if certain characters hadn't acted in certain ways in season one, we never would have had the fallout in season seven that makes the show so acclaimed. And the fact that they know their own history and adhere to it well enough to be able to reference scenarios that happen all the way back at the beginning later on in the series is fantastic and i think that's what makes deep space nine one of the better shows is because it understands its own history and it's willing to play to it all right well we do have 10 more minutes and so i did just want to touch on a show that we did cover earlier uh, since we have basically covered uh, the ds9 stuff real quick before before we jump fan mail from arendi o'neill's Cycler Castles with Spin Gravity, Solar Sails, Godov. Yeah. I want to say Thruster, Thruster from Moving Stars. From moving yeah. Stars. Love this kind of science. Again, Corion, if you like this, look up Isaac Arthur channel. You're going to have a field day. I like Isaac Arthur. I also uh, pay very much attention to Scott Manley, which I highly recommend as well. All right, so since we do have a few extra minutes... I get the vibe that Arende is is 100% just realized that Corion is also of his passion. Thrown together. Yep. So, one other show I would like to promote, uh, since John and I were able to finish it, and John didn't do the homework, we'll we'll go ahead and throw you a bone for the last couple of minutes here. And that is, of course, the uh, Hulu series, meta series, series within a series reboot 
Uh, this show started off pretty raunchy, and I honestly thought it was probably just going to be another, you know, or just turn into like a live action Rick and Morty, just get worse and degenerate the more it went, and I was open to seeing where it went. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, I cannot believe how surprisingly wholesome this show actually ended up being. I think it's Steven Levitin's most wholesome piece that he's ever been a part of. Because, wow, uh, what a show. But, uh, John, what did you think of Reboot overall, though? Dude, I am getting really annoyed with watching comedy shows that also make me feel. <laughs> then stay away from Scrubs. Like, well, I love Scrubs. I think it's just so it's funny. One of the best, yeah. I, I binged that one a couple years ago. Just in a row for the first time every episode. So great. I love the janitor. One of my favorite archetypes of a character ever. Um, but no, it, Reboot was so in terms of it, it, like that, that's kind of where I come at, like my ideas for like a better way to fix a lot of the problems I see is like if I watch a show like Reboot and learn a comedic interpretation of the inner workings of Hollywood I understand that like just like any job it's almost impossible to get exactly what you ask for so when requesting it you aim with precision for the desired effect but not necessarily the desired title or role or interpretation of the thing and that's really like what this show shows a lot of is that you want to write the story you want to write and you want it to go well and then like any business you have to work with people <laughs> you have to have collaborators you have to have co-hosts you have to have people also writing this stuff and i think it's really funny parker you got into the idea of it being uh, vulgar and grotesque out the gate and as vulgar and grotesque as it was it never again moved that line oh, which was nice it was like yeah it opened and it said this is my line and 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 now from here on out you know exactly how how gruesome and, and grotesque we're gonna get and every episode is gonna be within that threshold from here on out and 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 that was a that's something that a lot of shows don't let you bank on and i think that's the harder part about the grotesque shows like rick and morty did take it too far and only a few of us were like yeah that's it's not too far and that's <laughs> that's where this show changed the line is that like no we're gonna give you the line and we're not gonna go back to it if anything we're gonna also now spend the next six episodes showing you the bottom like we're gonna show you the least vulgar version and that's what made it so fun and so funny was because I was no longer worried I was going to laugh at something wrong. Yeah, well... And, and, and it's a great show. It's... And it ended emotionally to feel so bad for everyone, but I also... Johnny... Johnny Knoxville's... Yeah, Johnny Knoxville's character ended up being my favorite by the end. I mean, they're all great characters because they, they recognize... They recognize the failures of their past and they don't want to repeat those mistakes. Um... But, but especially Johnny but Knoxville's character. the only but, one actively not repeating. Like, throughout mm -hmm. the entire series, he is doing everything by asking for help. Uh, acknowledging that he needs to go to meetings. Acknowledging 
that like life is temporary and his decisions matter. Like all the way up to the last episode with the house purchase and the bottle that Hulu just willy-nilly gave him, even though they know for a fact that he goes to these meetings. Uh, I don't think it's widespread and yet. I don't think they no, knew it, that. It, I think I think some exec like, just heard, oh, hey, he bought a house. Send him a gift bottle of booze. Exactly. and that that But that goes to show how important like like that whole scene with him i felt was such a beautiful representation of like the suffering of alcoholics yeah here is this star who knows he cannot drink but he just deceived a, a, a societal cultural achievement by buying his first house his company Staring down is the applauding barrel. him and and, and but dude, does he stare it down? And the moment he sees somebody else in need, what does he do? Yeah, I was in need too. He's just open about it. He yeah. doesn't go, oh, well, here, come on in. I'm here for you. No, instead he goes, yeah, I'm not supposed to be alone either. Well, like, not- that was the emotional thing that got to me was like there was somebody that was actually growing while the rest of the characters felt middling. And faking it, Johnny Knoxville is actually a man who grew from the failures of his past. Well, he's still... Throughout the whole season. We, we kind of get a bit of a cliffhanger ending. And 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 so we don't entirely know how long it's going to stick. But at the same time, the, the message that, that... The emotions that got me were showing that even if you forgot to grow up, you still can. And I think that's what I loved about Knoxville's character was was he wasted a lot of you know a lot of his youthful years being a screw up, and now he's finally trying to be a responsible adult, and and now he's finally starting to see oh this is what I missed out on early on in my life this was this is what owning a house is this is what you know this is what taking responsibility for your actions and actually trying to to be a decent person looks like and he he plays it so well i mean h marie said that he's basically playing himself but and that's the funny thing is look at his inverse character the young kid who who's like oh yeah no i buy a house every movie i release (laughs) and you're like that's really really irresponsible and he's like and then i rent them out and i started this llc to do that and if you flip that all the way back to the like third episode where the mom is like super controlling but now you take it all the way to the end episode and it turns out no this kid's actually just still young because his life is actually aimed in all of the financial ways so like he hasn't had to like emotionally struggle because his life is actually curated appropriately and he's so he's actually intelligent on he's like no i have an llc that runs this and rents all this stuff out and it's crazy that like those are the two polar opposite characters and we thought johnny knoxville was the more normal but it turns out the nerdy kid that hasn't gotten out of hollywood is the more normal yep absolutely absolutely all right well we are coming down to the last couple of minutes so i do want to thank all uh 90 of our youtube subscribers and uh if you are listening to this podcast through different means whether it's apple spotify or wherever and you'd like to catch the show live please check us out at youtube.com slash at the writer brothers um that's our handle it's pretty easy to remember and so if you want to see, if you haven't seen what any of us look like yet, guess what? 
catch us live every Tuesday. And those of you that are here, especially to uh, Arende and, of course, Nemesis of Eden, thanks for popping in. And a shout-out to Galinda. Uh, hopefully uh, everything's going well for you tonight. Missed you tonight, but, uh, hey, that's all right. We're, our show's here for you and here for probably, everybody. Probably in that, and for all of you that are in that post-Halloween diabetic uh, coma, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we love you, we miss you, we hope you catch the show on the replay. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate any and all support that you guys give. We we love doing this. We love coming here to talk. We love talking with you guys. And so we want to be able to continue to do that, continue to grow. Uh, but we're also going to enjoy the slow burn in the process because there is something nice about having the, the smaller community. Mindset. So. And it's not just the destination. It's the journey. Absolutely. So from all of us here at the Ryder Brothers, thank you for your guys' continued support. I'm Petey York. We will see you next week. This has been a presentation of The Writer Brothers Tuesday Night Live Show. The Writer Brothers. Unlike some shows, we are for everyone.